but how many of those customers are sharing um, what you've done with others, right? So you get some of this flywheel effect. So I like to think of product market fit of you have a certain amount of customers who, who pay for your servers, who stay, who don't leave, who don't churn, yeah. uh, and, and, and who would actually throw a ruckus if you would take the servers away, but also who tell others about it. Welcome to the Business Ownership Podcast, brought to you by Awareness Strategies, helping you navigate the waters between entrepreneurship and ownership. Hey there, peeps. This is Michelle Nedelec, and I'm super glad that you're here with us today because I'm here with my most amazing guest, Stein Stein. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for having me, Michelle. <laughs> awesome. So give us a highlight of who you are and what you do for business. Yeah, I'm, I'm a marketer like you, uh, yeah. although I didn't <laughs> I didn't start my career like that. I started as a software developer um, and landed at Microsoft in the early days and became a marketer there and you know, ran global marketing teams for small business, for uh, the office team. And at some point I left, I uh, decided that the, the latter part of my career uh, had to be more about how could I do something on my own, right? Of course, did, did some interesting things at Microsoft, but pretty sure those would have happened without me as well. Um, <laughs> so yeah, started a couple of companies and all in software. So I've been in software for more than 20 years. And in the last uh, couple of years, been more on the investing side, consulting with CEOs and founders after having a couple uh, software startups myself. And, and these days, I think I, I, it's more than just marketing I help. CEOs, founders built their go-to-market teams, marketing sales, wrote a book on it. Um, so thank you mm -hmm. for having me. And so the, the book T2D3 on sort of how to scale after you reach product market fit. How do you do that? I mean, there's a lot of books on how to get there, right? The, the lean startup and zero to one, but sort of what happens right after product market fit is often, it's much harder, right? You need to do many things at the same time, reduce churn, drive up your funnel size, get your conversions up. Make sure all that leads to customers buying more from you, ARPU expansion. So, yeah, so I wrote the book and, and that's kind of the last couple of years has been my um, my biggest, uh, where I spent most of my time now helping companies you know, implement some of those, uh, the playbook and uh, and learning from them. And as I kind of did that, I also started an agency, Kalungi, that just is, you know, doing outsourced uh, go-to market uh, for, for B2B SaaS startups so you can outsource your full uh, marketing and sales to them but that's 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 an agency i started i'm i'm more sort of working myself as an investor as an advisor um with some of the owners and the founders very cool so for those who don't know what does t2d3 stand for yeah so it was funny when we picked the so my co-author and i mike northfield uh, he did all the illustrations and a lot of the the more detailed uh, research when we picked the name we were leaning towards something that was interesting that would make people look up. Like, hey, what is that? What does that mean? <laughs> right. Um, but also has some connection with the people that we really, when you think of nailing a niche, you know, the, the people that really would gravitate toward it. And T2D3 stands for triple your um, your revenue, your ARR, two years in a row, and then double it three more years in a row. And it's an acronym that's usually described, uh, usually used to describe the, the growth curve of early stage uh, startups that hit their stride and that really get to uh, to high scale. Um, one of the the, the partners at uh, Battery Ventures came up with it, I think, in 2015 or something like that. And 
so yeah, we ended up doing a lot of the work at the last six, seven years on how to actually do that, how to hit C2D3, and that's what the book's about. Love it. So are you working mostly with um, software companies? Are you working with any kind of business that wants to scale? Where are you? Who are you with? I think you, you kind of stick with what you know, right? <laughs> so B2B SaaS, under 15, 20 million, that's really my uh, where I feel at home, where I feel I can add the most value. But yeah, I ran a I ran a, a five hundred people team at Microsoft with a multi billion dollar software business. So it's, there's plenty of things we can apply to larger companies as well. <laughs> right. Um, but it's definitely not as applicable uh, as it is for the smaller companies who are just getting started and who just need a playbook. Nice, love it. So for those who don't know what SaaS is, I think you have to be under a rock right now. But <laughs> explain what SaaS is for those who SaaS. don't know. Well, I don't think if you ask the same question to multiple people, you'll probably still get different answers. <laughs> um, but yes, software as a service. For me, the service part is really what, what's often the most confusing to people, right? When you go from selling someone something that they end up owning versus selling something that you need to keep providing a service, which is not unique for software, of course. Mm -hmm. um, this whole notion of now having to deliver value over and over again is I think what makes SaaS truly unique, right? That you expect customers to keep paying you, which means then for you as a software company, you need to keep adding value, right? And keep providing value. And that, that's really unique. And then more the technical side of how would you define SaaS? It means that the software is delivered uh, from the cloud, right? As a service that you digitally subscribe to, that you keep paying for. That's usually also all running on the same uh, version. It's one, one code base, single tenant right? Instead of multiple versions of the software. So every customer is using the same. Um, and then another a, a key characteristic, I think, is that it's typically it's elastic. You can scale the servers up and down, right? The, how much you need, how many users you have, how much data you save or store, right? All those things are very flexible, which makes, which makes it very, uh, it's, it's, it's the winning business model, right? Of the last 15 years, because it's so suitable for the dynamic business world we live in today. Absolutely, it is. So when you're looking at companies, uh, SaaS companies, let, I want to take you through, take me through, <laughs> I'm not taking you anywhere. You're taking me through the kind of the startup, somebody that has an inkling of an idea of a software thing that might work and kind of the problems they have all the way up to kind of when do you get to pass your clients off and go, hey, you're big, get out of my nest, <laughs> go do something else. So start yeah. me off with the little guys. It's kind of coincidence. It's really coincidence. We didn't prep this question, but when you look at the wall behind me, there's a there's a baseball diamond, mm -hmm. and it actually describes the phases that you just um, asked the question about, Michelle. Going from what I like to call uh, MVP, a minimum viable product, that would be first base, uh, to product market fit, second base, and then to T two D three, this sort of scalable growth uh, stage that would be third base, and ultimately home plate is often described as the rule of forty, um, getting to profitability, getting to be EBITDA positive, or get to hundred million. So there's multiple versions of home plate, um, but yeah. So if we talk, if we think of those four stages, so MVP, proving that some problem is worth solving, right? Finding. Not often a lot, but a handful of customers who say, this is important. And we are maybe not even voting with our wallet, but we vote with our time that we like to use your product. We'll give you feedback. We'll help you build it, help you finish it. That's often how MVP is, um, is defined, right? And there's a lot of books on that. There's a lot of methodologies to test ideas and to do quick product iteration, right? Things like sprints, et cetera. So that's first base. 
And then second base, product market fit is some form of economic viability that you've hit, right? Now you have, let's say, hundreds of customers or thousands. And uh, what, what is helpful for SaaS, I think, is to make the definition not so much about how many customers you have, but how many of those customers are sharing um, what you've done with others, right? So you get some of this flywheel effect. So I like to think of product market fit of you have a certain amount of customers who, who pay for your servers, who stay, who don't leave, who don't churn, yeah. Uh, and, and and who would actually throw a ruckus if you would take the service away, but also who tell others about it, right? That's kind of a, from my, is my definition of product market fit. And and whether that needs to be 10 customers that, that pay you hundred thousands of dollars a year or thousands of customers who pay you 10 or $20 a month, it doesn't really matter, but you, you have some form of sustainable economic proof point. And then and the, the trick now is when you hit product market fit, that's usually when investors are willing to invest in your business, where you might be willing to double down and, and go all in and, and, and turn, put every bit of revenue that you get back into investing in scale. The tricky thing is now you get to product market fit usually by doing one or two things really well. And you're in marketing, Michelle, it could be an organic marketing um, sort of stride that you've hit, right? Or your your PPC is working really well, or you have a partnership or a sponsorship that, that got you to product market fit. But to get to T2D3 growth, if you need to triple your ARR, you know, to those first two years, that doesn't, it's not enough anymore. You now have to grow your, your marketing, grow your MQL volume, right? Your pipe volume. You have to grow, uh, increase your conversion rates. The, those leads have to convert at a higher rate. At the same time, they need to convert into bigger deals, right? The ARPU, the, the revenue per unit per user needs to grow. And you need to make sure that all your customers stay with you. So, that, so that's really tricky. That third base to get to T2D3, doing all those things at the same time is really critical. And then, of course, at some point, you'll you'll shift from high-scale growth where profitability maybe um, is less important to you. You go to, hey, how do I make sure that I hit what's called the rule of 40, where my profitability goes up and it sort of starts to complement the growth rate where both of those together, you know, and that's really home plate. So, th so those are the four stages that I like to... Um, like to think about it, and that's the that's the baseball diamond because you cannot really go from second base to to to, to home plate. You know, you have to get to third. the umpires don't like that. Well, but you probably seen a lot too, right? With your customers skipping MVP or skipping product market fit, thinking that you can suddenly get thousands of leads because you think your product is fantastic, right? It just doesn't work like that, right? Well, and I'm loving the analogies. And you mentioned something that was fun that you can't, they're not doing it within two years. SaaS has a unique um, market issue in that it has to grow fast. <laughs> Otherwise it loses its dynamics in the marketplace. Whereas, you know, if I'm a plumber or a lawyer, I don't really have to grow my yeah, business. Yeah, the needs will years. still be there in a couple of years. Exactly. Right? <laughs> so yeah, how much fun is that kind of, playing with that idea that like how long is this going to be a necessity because i mean you have something like microsoft where yeah everybody's probably going to always have to have word docs and excel spreadsheets but then you get mm -hmm. something else and it's like yeah, dude you got to take advantage of this now <laughs> by the way that was my first test, uh, business so i ran product marketing for the office team when we moved to office 365 and this was for the 
I owned it for the small and medium business as part of the market. Yeah. But that is a SaaS business too, right? So that yeah. you you could argue that commodity product is the wrong term because they have a ton of innovation. They still do, but it's a product that a lot of people need and they'll need it for a long time to come, right? Mm -hmm. But your comment is very, um, very um, uh, true. When you, especially are an early stage startup and you're doing something that's innovative, that's new, there's a small amount of time that you have to 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 get enough market share, right, to become one of the winners. And there is a little bit of a winner-take-all um, economy now, right, with these type of solutions, because whether it's the, the top rankings on the organic search uh, uh, results or getting the right... Um, partnerships there's only so many um like the, most of the business will go to the top the two top two top the two or three top players so the clock is ticking um and that's also why i think some companies tend to go maybe sometimes try to cut a corner especially when they get funded they start spending their way to the top um without making sure that the customers actually love their product and stay with the product and don't churn uh, but you're right. There's a there's a time, um, and I think it's really important to hit your stride fast enough and to to get to the finish line quick. Is to make sure that you have a fundamental st strategic um, clarity, um, and 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 I always think your strategy can be a couple of things, and but you have to pick one. When you are in a category, Michelle, that is relatively that exists. You know there are. In the software world, you have things like Captera and Software Advice. You have these comparison websites. And if you're in a software category that exists where there are other uh, players already, then it's probably hard to go try dominate that category. So you now need to say, hey, am I going to either disrupt the category? Or am I going to do something that, that nobody else does yet that maybe services a, a group of customers that is over-surfaced by the other by my competitors, right? And there might be a niche there that you can really nail. Um, or am I going to differentiate? Am I, am I, is there a group of customers who are who's not getting exactly what they need, right? If if let's talk about CRM, right? A very crowded software category. Do I need? Am I going to build a CRM product just for? whatever, butchers, right? Or <laughs> pick something. And especially with our, with our move to eating less meat, you know, that, that niche is getting smaller and smaller. <laughs> but maybe there's still a need there for a very unique CRM product that can do some things that only butchers need, right? So, mm -hmm. But that, that's how you would pick your strategy. You either differentiate, you do something better than everybody else because you're doing it for a group that is underserviced, or you disrupt because you find a group of customers. This is what um, Canva did with Adobe, right? Canva basically, mm -hmm. they didn't build better design tools. They basically just said, hey, there's a lot of Adobe users out there who don't need Adobe. It's too much for them, right? So yeah. they created something a little simpler and a little cheaper. Um, so having that strategic clarity helps you get faster to, I think, to build something that's sustainable. And a mistake that I often see early stage companies make, that they're so um, so excited, they're so convinced that their solution is fantastic, that they think they can dominate a category. They don't make one of those choices, and they try to to win every deal and to go after every uh, different opportunity. And that's just extremely costly, and it's usually not a way to to get um, to, to to success. Awesome. So when somebody has an idea, or they're obviously they're building their SaaS, they're they're in that phase where they're now looking at you to do it. What kind of mistakes do you most often see people make when it comes to the marketing of that product? 
Well, specifically marketing, our field, Michelle, marketing is such a broad discipline. It's very easy to get lost in the 20 or 30 things you can do, right? From right. focusing on branding and creating a logo to uh, figuring out content marketing yourself before you actually hire someone who's done it before um, or figuring out um, your product positioning and pricing sort of um, along the way <laughs> without being thoughtful about that uh, and making, for example, how you price your products part of your positioning. Mm -hmm. Are you a premium product or are you a value product, et cetera? So I think if a founder or um, a leader of a small software company is not a marketer or, or is a sales professional, you know, trying to wing it themselves because they think it's a relatively easy thing to do. We all can do marketing, right, Bill? Well. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's something I see go wrong often. And then, uh, or they hire people who are just not good enough. Because when you're small, uh, even when you get funded, let's say you're a Series A stage, you got, you got a couple million dollars in growth funding, you're still not going to be very competitive recruiting really talented people have done it before because you're competing with the the big the microsoft or the googles of the world i'm in seattle or amazon um or you're competing with the series c stage startup right who can pay someone 150 thousand dollars where you can maybe only pay them 80 or 90 uh, and you're just not going to get the talent um so finding people who've done it before is critical and sometimes that means you go um, maybe the the, the part-time or the the freelance route first Mm -hmm. uh, before you commit to hiring people and then maybe not getting the talent you need. Wow. And does that ever, um, like I can only imagine that in an industry that's <laughs> so competitive and so many people are like, it's the idea that pays off really in the end, like the implementation of it is, yeah, you got thousands of programmers. We can program. We need the ideas. How often do are people getting their ideas ripped off and, you know, suddenly they have competition in an industry that they didn't think they had any competition in before? Like, I, I'd imagine it's quite cutthroat, but that's just kind of my perspective on it. Yeah, no, you cannot sit still, right? It means you'll go backward. This is an industry where you, you have to expect to be copied or to be imitated. And uh, especially because everything is digital, so there's not a lot of cost to produce something, right? Um, Apple can sort of stay competitive with their iPhone because they, they own part of the supply chain, right? The, the materials <laughs> that actually are used to make the phone. When you're in software, you don't have that. Um, so yeah, you need to constantly innovate, Michelle. And, and I think when you do a good job as a SaaS entrepreneur, uh, listening to your customers because you want them to stay with you, right? Because you're, you're selling them that service that constantly needs to improve because you're also expecting them to keep you paying you, right? It automatically kind of feeds your innovation uh, pipeline, right? It means you learn a lot of things and things that you don't do that well, maybe things that are missing that customers would love to see. So there's no excuse really for a software company these days to not constantly make their product better. And then the, I think the, the whether you succeed or not is, is usually about execution more than about strategy because you get all these customer signals. It's more about how, how effective are you in both incorporating all that feedback into improving your product, but also still you know innovating in areas where customers don't have the imagination of what could be possible with your technology. So you have to kind of mix those two. Um, but yeah, I think that's a great point. You have to assume that if you don't improve and, and make the product better, it will just be obsolete in a couple of years. Wow. So 
I had a question and I knew it was going to pop out of my head and it popped right out of my head. <laughs> um, I will get, oh, well, that's what it is. What do you think of the, the idea and notion of a lot of companies now are with their um, startup clients saying pay one time, get lifetime access to it. What's your take on that as a... I haven't marketing. heard that actually. Yeah. I don't think that you're that you're not a SaaS company anymore. You suddenly became a, I sell you a perpetual right, right? Which in the mm -hmm. software world used to be called um, a perpetual license, right? Um, is that what you're referring to? Well, yeah. So I have seen a trend in software companies that it's to basically it's to fund their self fund their their build out and mm -hmm. and they're going hey if you you know, sign up now instead of paying 40 bucks a month, pay 400 and you get lifetime access. And it's wow. in their opinion, one way to kind of stop the churn because they're not getting the traction mm -hmm. of $40 mm -hmm. that they need for the 12 months. So they're hoping that they can pay their programmers <laughs> to be able to get it to a minimum viable wow. at that point. And then if they don't, well then, hey, you have lifetime access to a piece of crap. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Yeah, I have. Now that you mentioned it, they give the example. I've, I've seen that as part of how you fund your company, like Kickstarters mm -hmm. and things like that, that provide you then a certain you know, right to uh, use it that nobody else gets. Um, and of course, it's very common in content where you, where you buy content as a subscription, but you can buy it you know, forever uh, by paying maybe a, a five or six year equivalent of the subscription fee. I think in, on the content side, you see that a lot. Uh, when it comes to a SaaS company, it's just all very um, uh, much driven by what's your cost to service, right? As as marketers, we usually look at what's called CAC, right? Customer acquisition cost as the cost of getting a new customer, right? The marketing, mm -hmm. the sales investments, et cetera, to get one. But I think what's really critical before you uh, do something like what you described is that you understand what your cost to service those customers is right if you're if your service runs on a on an infrastructure that you need to maintain that you need to pay for that where you pay service cost utility cost you pay amazon uh, or azure for bandwidth and for storage and for compute power then at some point that will just start you will start losing money if you if you give eternal rights and you and you still have to pay Amazon uh, uh, believe me every year. <laughs> and, <laughs> what and they don't just go oh yeah sure take a break it's all no good. and AWS and Azure are also notoriously known for increasing their prices all the time right so <laughs> it's a risky it's a risky proposition but I can totally see that a startup does it to do some early funding of their company but you but you definitely have to be very careful there. Got it. So let's talk about your clients, the people that are reading the book and looking at you and going, hey, <laughs> I need your help on this. What are some of the principles that you're teaching throughout the book that help them to kind of get to the next level? Yeah, there's a couple of things. I think the, the most fundamental is to think of this type of high skill growth as a multidiscipline effort. You cannot just look at your funnel. You cannot just look at, you know, product marketing to expand the the revenue per unit or just look at churn reduction. You have to look at it holistically. So that's one. Two, especially when you're small, you can't really afford to start and stop and start and stop. What happens a lot in marketing is when things don't work, you know, we pull the plug and we try something else. And I Especially, tried Facebook ads for three weeks and they didn't work. <laughs> yeah. And the thing is yeah. that a lot of these things need a little more time 
to, yep. to either prove that they work or to learn and, and have some real insights they can use to do something else or do, do it better, yeah. right? Whether you're testing messaging or you're optimizing advertisements or you're working on your an account-based market, an ABM campaign, right? You're, I've seen this a lot. You, people start doing outbound email campaigns, which by the way, sometimes still works. It's not necessarily the best tactic for everything, but let's say you do this and you do it for a couple of weeks or a couple of months. The the one you need, you need to get one thing out of a campaign like that, or any marketing initiative, honestly. Either you get leads, you get the results that you're expecting, or you get real insights that are actionable. And I think what happens a lot in marketing that people get impatient, or founders or CEOs get impatient, and they pull the rug under these things without actually gaining that insight and, and being able to do something with that learning. And then you basically wasted all the money, right? Uh, and all the time. So that would be one of the things that uh, that, are, that is a theme in the book. To to I, there's this term called start, stop, um, continue. I like to say start, stop, finish. <laughs> <laughs> Make sure right. you finish things and you don't sort of pause them in the midstream. Um, what's another concept? Uh, we talk a lot about this uh, notion of your go-to market strategy being disruption differentiation or, or domination, which in the letter is extremely hard and very unlikely. So to be extremely clear on where you optimize your, your positioning and your product investments and your pricing and your packaging to, to support one of those um, strategies. Uh, and then I, I, I spent a lot of time on um, sort of teaching by sharing experiences on how to become a CMO of a SaaS company. Um, actually at a early at a relatively early stage in people's careers. So a lot of the people that I've coached and mentored, Michelle, are, are relatively young. They did an MBA. They're still in their late 20s, early 30s. And I believe that with the right, uh, the right education and the right type of best practices, et cetera, they can be fantastic marketing leaders for early stage companies who cannot afford people like me, old people <laughs> who've been at Microsoft and all these, because they just cannot afford us, right? So, so how do you get someone with an MBA and a couple of years of experience to be a great CMO or VP of marketing for a small uh, SaaS uh, startup? And that's really what the book is focused on, to give those there's relatively practical tools and, and templates, et cetera, whether it's templates for budgets or for campaigns um, or who to hire, job descriptions, things like that, to get someone going relatively quick and early in their career to lead marketing for a small company. Well, you bring up a great point because I kind of assumed that tech companies were run by techies. <laughs> but wait. You're saying is a lot and of they often are, are right, which not doesn't always work. <laughs> <laughs> but they're actually getting a lot of MBAs that are that have the ideas and go, yeah, I know how to run a company. Now I just have to hire the techs to do the thing and fulfill on my idea. Too. Yeah, yeah. Very I think cool. most founders fall into one or two categories, right? They're either subject matter experts who really understand a problem. Yeah. Like the dentist who built a software company to do dental practice management, right? Something like yeah. that. Or you have an engineer who says, hey, I'm very good at building technology and I'm going to find a problem to apply my skills to. And that's how you found a company. But it's far more, um, uh, it, it, what does not happen a lot is that someone with a sales or marketing or go-to-market background starts um, these companies. And, and to your point, sometimes it's an MBA who does that, but it's less likely than those other two examples. And they both need a lot of CMO help. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I love it. So what would you say is your favorite part of your business? 
uh, working with young people and seeing them reach their potential. Uh, that's that's why I do this, Michelle. I, I've, I've kind of done the things in my career that I needed to do to be professionally kind of satisfied and, and, and be uh, economically uh, healthy. So I'm now really just enjoying working with uh, the young people and seeing them have lead uh, an executive team, you know, at, at a young age and have so much impact. It's really cool. I love that. I, I wish I had heard that from more experienced people when I was young, because I always thought I was bugging them or annoying them or getting in their way. <laughs> it's like, no, they ha we actually love helping people that are starting out because it's so much fun and so exciting. Yeah, the, the agency I founded, Kalungi.com, Kalungi, they have had CMOs who started when they were like 24, 25 as interns. Wow. He became a CMO of a software company like a year later, a year and a half later, and did fantastic. And then at some point, had two or three companies that they had been CMO and did a whole rebrand and did a launch of a new product and and then ended up, you know, two, three years later, 28, 29 years old, landing a huge CMO gig or VP marketing full-time job uh, with a big company that, that usually would look for someone in their 40s to do that. Wow, so, that's yeah, awesome. Really, really exciting. Awesome, awesome. So... Uh... Gonna say other than that, give me an example of a Cinderella story of one of your clients. Other than that one, <laughs> what you what, what we've we've seen a lot is um, companies who are professional services companies who, who sell fantastic content and 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 people skills and experience etc. They want to turn that into software. They want to put it in a bottle, right? And it is really hard to do that. Without um, without going through those uh, four bases in the baseball, so actually to get really an MVP and real product market fit, and when you have a lot of customers who pay you for your services because they love you as a consultant, it's kind of easy to mistake that for product market fit. It doesn't mean that your software is being you know you might actually give them the software for free, but they're really paying for you being there um so when we uh, i'm not going to give you a specific name for a specific company but oh, when we see not. a ceo succeed in turning their own the thing that they work for 30 years or 20 years and they, they've got so much knowledge about a certain problem or a certain industry and to be able to actually turn that into a software product that now instead of reaches maybe 20 or 30 customers that they can they can service themselves it can now reach thousands of customers those are really cool stories okay. so yeah i've worked with a lot of software companies that were originally people doing something amazing for their customers and were able to turn it into a software product and now reach a much bigger scale which is really cool fun i love that so is somebody is one of the stumbling blocks that somebody might be having right now is uh well, actually, let me rephrase this. What are yeah. some of the stumbling blocks that somebody might be having right now and they're thinking, oh my God, Stein, I need you so badly. What it, what problems are they having in their business that just makes them redirect towards you? Well, I don't, I don't, I don't sell my time anymore, but when you yeah, no. think of the book <laughs> and, and, and Columbia, the company it, and, it's yeah. really the, the, the people who say, I, I'm running a business. I'm, I'm really excited that i know a problem that needs solving i'm building software to do so but i have no idea how to go to market how to do marketing how to... and i'm not interested in having a web developer over here and a writer over there who don't communicate with each other i can't hold anybody accountable <laughs> you know? right. uh, then then you know this this approach might work um or kalungi in that case if you want to just outsource it 
love it. Yeah, love it, love it, love it, love it. So I know our listeners are going to want more from you. How do they, how do they, where do they buy the book? How do they get a hold of your company? <laughs> All that fun stuff. Yeah, the book is pretty easy. It's, of course, the acronym is not, but t2d3.pro, so not.com, t2d3.pro, P-R-O, or Kalungi, K-A-L-U-N-G-I.com, which is really an agency that does outsourced growth, growth as a service, um, and the book t2d3.pro. Love it. And of course, peeps, we will have all of Stein's links in the show notes. So scroll down. You'll find the links in there. Awesome. So I get to ask you, at what point in life did you know that you were a special kind of crazy enough to think that you could become an entrepreneur? I don't know. I think it was mostly my wife at some point. Just said, <laughs> Stop working for these big companies and just go do it yourself. Uh, Oh, so I, did, I, I did need a little bit of that push. Yeah. I don't know when it was, probably 12 years ago, something like that. Yeah. That is awesome. I love that. I don't think anybody's given me that answer yet. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Stein, you've been awesome. Thank you. Any last words for our peeps? I love um, when people produce things, when they get things over the finish line. So the two words that I would end on is uh, for, especially for entrepreneurs, but also for marketers, keep shipping. I love it. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. And I know how valuable it is. Thank you, Michelle, for having me. Peeps, this is Michelle Nedelec. Thank you for being here with us today. Be sure to subscribe to the show and share it with your friends. We love helping entrepreneurs grow. Are you running a business over seven figures, but still struggling with technology headaches? Pay attention. You do not want to miss this offer. This podcast episode is brought to you by Awareness Strategies, who is offering a custom-built digital adoption roadmap for anyone running a business over seven figures who's wanting to grow their business in the next five years. And it's not just a roadmap. They offer full implementation as well. If that scares the out of you, check out awarenessstrategies.com forward slash roadmap for more details today. The link's in the show's notes. Don't regret not doing this. Do it now. That's awarenessstrategies.com slash roadmap.